This is Shore in Your Ears, the official podcast series of the Shore Initiative. The Student Housing and University Real Estate Initiative is an international membership, data analytics, and content source for planners in university real estate and student housing, with the mission to improve student lives and enhance the built environment in university neighborhoods. On April 20th, 2023, Andrew Drexler of First National Financial in Canada presented at Shore Vancouver, an in-person event organized by the Shore Initiative. The event was held at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Western Canada. Often described as one of the most trusted individuals in a dynamic industry, Andrew Drexler's clients seek him out not only for financing solutions, but also his depth of knowledge and experience. What you are about to hear is a captivating presentation from Andrew Drexler, recorded at Shore Vancouver. Andrew discusses the realities of the new paradigm in real estate, described as a high inflationary environment with rapidly rising interest rates. You will hear Henry Morton of Toronto-based Campus Suites introduce Andrew Drexler. Okay, good afternoon everybody. Um, Welcome to the 115-ish session. So for the next half hour, we're going to hear from Andrew Wexler from First National. He told me no introductions necessary, so Andrew Wexler, I'm just kidding. Here's my introduction. How's that? Okay, okay. I'll be Andrew. Um, so as uh, First National, as First National Financial's Assistant Vice President and Team Leader in the Commercial Financing Division, Andrew's focused on providing an array of, of value-added services. These services are catered to mitigating risk and maximizing opportunities for its stakeholders. Andrew brings this experience to both term and construction financing um, across several asset classes, including apartments, student housing, retail, and industrial. And in this capacity, he's originated over $10 billion of loans in his 21-year career. You look like you owe me, like, <laughs> you know, $10 billion of loans in 21 years and not a single one with this guy right there. <laughs> not a single one with him. So thanks everybody. Um, you know, I have to start off with my first disclaimer, which is that I absolutely, by the way, they told me that I'm supposed to talk like a gangster, like a hip hop artist and put my microphone right here. So let me know if you don't hear me. Um, so my first disclaimer is that I absolutely love student housing. I think it will be the best performing real estate class in Canada over the next decade. With that, I have to give you my second disclaimer, which is that I will say things today that are not typically something that lenders say. Some of you will, will think it's a little bit harsh. Some of you will think it's a little bit doom and gloom. But my goal here is not to scare you. My goal is to simply just make you aware of some of the realities that are going on in the market and hopefully help you navigate some of the challenges that lie ahead. So um, I work at First National Financial. I am really proud of this company. We just celebrated our 35-year anniversary. It was a company that was started by Maury Taz and Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith, whose name is on the Queen's Business School. Uh, We have been at the forefront of innovation for the better part of the last two decades to become the largest lender in the industry. 
Um, I've been there for 21 years, and in my capacity as lender and advisor to some of Canada's top real estate companies, um, my job is to help my clients make money, save money, and most importantly, mitigate their risk. And mitigating risk is something that we're going to talk a lot today, and it's a common theme here. So when I first, when I was first asked to speak here, um, the global macroeconomic factors in play at the time were the um, global economy in a post-COVID environment, the war in Ukraine and the myriad of outcomes associated with it, and inflation, something that's on everybody's mind. Um, this led to basically a four and a quarter percent increase in the Bank of Canada rates in the past 12 months. And as it relates to real estate specifically, a rise in interest rates of two to two and a half percent in the all-in mortgage rate. In the past month, we've had the collapse of the 16th largest U.S. bank. We've had the historic bailout uh, of a 150-year-old Swiss institution. And we now have a U.S. Federal Reserve that is struggling to figure out how to prevent the catastrophic collapse of their financial system while at the same time listening to leading economic indicators that are continuing to point towards a higher interest rate path. So why is this relevant to you? Um, really for two reasons. First of all, we um, have lived in a prolonged period of low interest rates. And so whether you've owned um, personal real estate, residential real estate, commercial real estate, private investments, alternative investments, odds are that your net worth has gone up significantly in the past decade. And that might, might be about to change. Uh, the second reason is that as real estate owners and developers, we have benefited from low interest rates, an abundance of debt capital, an abundance of equity capital, and very good liquidity on the sell side. So once you've developed it, you want to exit, there's been very good liquidity. And so the question is really, what happens if interest rates don't come back down? I know that when I talk to people everywhere, everybody's convinced interest rates are going back down. And my question is simply to say, what happens if it doesn't? And how do we continue to bring much needed supply? Everything that you hear in this conference and everywhere talks about how much, how badly we need supply. So how do we continue to bring supply into the market in the face of lower returns driven by higher interest rates, higher construction costs, longer development pipelines, um, you know, uh, potentially a different source of equity capital, and as far as it relates to me, a fairly e-liquid debt environment, which is where I think we are right now. This is just the 10-year graph over the 10-year the government of Canada bond yield over 30 years. You know, when we talk about, you know, people thinking that interest rates have got to come back down, I mean, look at it where, where it is historically, right? It's still a fairly low level. So, um, you know, the point of today is really to say we badly need supply on the, on the apartment and the student housing side. So how do we take advantage of these incredible lucrative opportunities in the face of a lot of market uncertainty, a lot of hidden risk, and a lot of volatility? Just going to take you back really quickly to this one, which is the 10-year government Canada bond deal in the past 12 months. I have never seen anything like this in my 12 years. I mean, these are incredible, this is incredible volatility. So add to this illiquidity and market uncertainty. And so again, the point is, 
we have great opportunities in front of us, but how do we take care of this, and how do we navigate all these hidden risks? Okay, so now that I brought the energy really low to start, okay, it's kind of like the weather outside, we got to focus on some of the great things. So first of all, we live in a great country. I'm an immigrant. I came here uh, when I was 14. I am very grateful for the opportunities that my family and I have, have been given in Canada. When I look at Canada, I think it's a great place to live in and a great country to own real estate in. So we have a stable government. We have uh, a strong economy. We have access to healthcare. We have uh, a great workforce that is sophisticated. We have, um, you know, we're one of the most multicultural countries in the world. And as it relates to you guys, we have incredible universities that are much sought after by Canadians and international students. So we have a lot to be, to be happy about. And then as we segue into the, into the purpose-built student housing, into student housing asset class, I think, you know, Canada is the third largest international destination. That's about to get better because of our immigration policies and the, you know, anti-immigration policies in the U.S., you know, put on by the Trump administration. The fundamentals of the industries are strong. The buildings are beautiful. They are well taken up. The demand is excellent. Uh, we recently financed two, two uh, student housing buildings, one in Halifax and one in Montreal. They were fully leased long before construction ended, months and months before, and they're fully leased for next year. So the demand is there. So we have an excess demand uh, equation that is, that is clearly in favor of the purpose-built student housing class. Um, <clears throat> When you own and operate multiple buildings, you have excellent synergies that you create. And I, I have loved seeing the, the combination of public and private partnerships and how universities are starting to use developers and vice versa to create more supply. The one reason that I'm most excited about in this asset class is really the fact that it is the best real estate class to have a head, an inflation hedge. So because of the 30 to 40, 50% turnover, annual turnover, you are the best position to deal with the inflation. So student housing wasn't always loved though. And, and this is important because, you know, we've come a long way. So originally, you know, the buildings weren't very nice. There were a lot of like rooming houses. They weren't self-contained units. Um, you know, people had issues with you know, tenants destroying the place, so more wear and tear, more repairs, maintenance. And, you know, we always had as a lender, we were always concerned about the fact that you had interruptions in the cash flow, right? You had three, four, six, eight month leases and not the full 12 month leases. So you had interruptions in the cash flow. Also, Canada, let's not forget, has a very, very conservative lending system. Something we're grateful for right now when you look at what's going on in the US and what their lack of regulation and oversight has led to. And so, you know, I'm grateful for that, but with that comes drawbacks. And the drawbacks were that traditionally, we only liked multifamily and office and retail and industrial, right? And then in COVID hit and nobody liked retail anymore. And now nobody likes office. There is zero liquidity for office. And so now student housing is embraced and so are data centers and so are life sciences buildings and self-storage. So that's good, it's good for us, it's good for the student housing industry. Having said that though, when we look at how student housing has evolved to today, we are, I mean, first of all, the buildings are beautiful. Uh, you know, we have proper self-contained units, we have bedroom, bathroom parity, we have beautiful amenities, we have 
as a parent, you look at it and you say, my kid has indoor parking, they have 24-hour security. These buildings are incredible, so the buildings are a lot better. Then we solve the wear and tear issue because, why? Well, now these buildings are in so much demand that students would be silly to do something damaging to the buildings because they're going to get kicked out. And they know how difficult it is to, to get in there in the first place. We have parental guarantees. We have cross-tenant guarantees. And it just looks a lot better now, right? So student housing has come a long, long way. First, in addition to that, we have professional management, which makes a big difference. And we have institutional investors that have discovered this asset class. Everybody knows about Blackstone buying American campus communities for $12.8 billion last year. That's a big purchase. We know about CPP investing heavily in um, UK and US real estate. We know about other pension funds that are starting to discover this asset class. Canada was traditionally fairly segregated, so there weren't big portfolios available. Now you have the likes of Harrison or Woodbourne or Linebus who have built beautiful, high-quality portfolios, and they are now much more attractive to these institutional investors if they were ever to sell, because they can pick up large portfolios. So, do we feel a little bit better than when I started? There's a lot of positive things I said in there, right? Yes, Andy, good. Okay, so this is where my presentation turns a little gloomy like the weather outside because these are really the challenges that are coming up in our industry. And, you know, honestly, my job as a lender, you know, I, I don't like sounding negative sometimes, but it's just really the reality of what's going on out there. So, first of all, we have interest rates. Interest rates have moved up substantially. So what does that mean? That means that debt covers are much more difficult to achieve. Loan to values are now lower. Um, you know, we have large existing portfolios where borrowers are rolling over mortgages that were much lower interest rates into now much higher interest rates. Um, when I look at what's going on in the U.S., and sorry, so interest rates are also gonna to lead to lower valuations, right? So my clients over at this side of the room are gonna be really upset, so I'm not gonna make eye contact, but cap rates are gonna move up. So, you know, really, if interest rates have moved up as much as they have, you cannot possibly keep cap rates at the same level where they have been, right? I mean, there's gotta be a spread on your development cap rate or acquisition cap rate over your cost of debt. That's just historically what happens in real estate. So we're now at the point where debt has moved up substantially but cap rates have not. So unfortunately, as the lender, I have to say cap rates are gonna move. Now, I just wanna talk briefly about what's going on in the US because this is really important as it relates to Canada. So, we started with um, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, and there are a lot of other banks that have these issues. But first of all, they had long-term deposits that they invested for very low interest rates. Interest rates have blown up. These investments are now worth a lot less. So that's problem number one, they have unrealized losses. Problem number two is that depositors have lost confidence in them, and so now they're pulling the deposits out, which means those banks have no money to lend. Okay, problem number two. Problem number three is that commercial real estate, from what I've heard, is something like a, a trillion and a half of commercial real estate debt that's rolling over in the next few years in the United States. Most of that is at the regional bank level. So you have banks that can't really roll over uh, loans, and you're gonna start having defaults because a lot of the debt in the US is non-recourse. So 
when we see Brookfield defaulting on a $750 million loan a few months ago, and we see Brookfield defaulting on a $121 million loan two days ago on an office portfolio, you start thinking, well, that's okay, because that's a big player. But that's just the name you hear in the news because they're a big name. But the reality is that if these guys are doing that, well, certainly there are a lot of other mid and smaller size landlords that are facing the same issue. Okay, so how does that impact Canada? Well, it impacts the liquidity because my job as a lender is to go out and source a lot of loans. And I come back to the office and I have a huge credit department whose job it is to turn down these loans and to poke holes in my analysis and in my underwriting and find reasons why they shouldn't do those loans. So when my credit guys hear about all the stuff that's going on in the US, they say, you see, Andrew, that's why we shouldn't be doing non-recourse. That's why we shouldn't be doing interest-only loans. That's why we should keep the leverage at 50%. So all of that is to say that there is a lot less liquidity in the Canadian market, and we've already seen it already, and in my mind, it's just the beginning of what's going on in the US. The other thing I want to talk to you about is interest rates are not just made up of that government Canada bond deal that you saw at the beginning, that chart. Interest rates are made up of the government, the underlying government Canada bond yield, plus the credit spread. The credit spread is the risk premium that we take to do these loans, and it's driven by what's going on in the world economy, in the banking sector, with the war in Ukraine. All of these risk factors play a factor into that risk premium. So I'll give you a specific example. Rio Pian Reed, one of my excellent clients who has a excellent high-quality portfolio, investment-grade rating. Um, they just issued a corporate bond on, I think it was March 1st. It was issued, the price was Government of Canada bond yields plus 2%. Okay? 30 days later, that bond was trading at a Government of Canada yield plus 250. So in the span of a month, the risk premium in the market has moved up by 50 basis points. That has nothing to do with Riocan. They're still the same great company. This has to do with the risk in the market. So, as a lender, we constantly have to say, well, do we do corporate bonds or do we do mortgages? To do mortgages, you're locking your money up because if I'm lending Harrison, uh, if I'm doing a five-year term, I don't get that money back for five years. But if I do a corporate bond, I'm going to get. The, I can sell technically sell that bond and recoup my liquidity. So if corporate bonds are being priced at 250 over Canada's, then I would think that mortgages would have to be priced at higher than 250 over Canada's. Now, this is a snapshot in time, but my point of all of this and what's going on in the US is that everything that has to do with risk there impacts the risk over here and impacts the pricing of mortgage rates. So when we look at mortgage rates and we say, hey, it's okay because the Bank of Canada is gonna start reducing their overnight rate, okay, that's fine and that's gonna drive bond yields down, but you still have that component of credit risk that is priced into your mortgage rate, and it's possible that that spread continues to go up. So this is really just to say that I'm not sure that mortgage rates are necessarily coming back down, even if you're of the opinion that inflation has peaked and we're now moving into, into um, a lower interest rate environment. So this is the real estate environment. Uh, this is the, these are the real estate industry challenges. Now, we need supply. So with supply comes development. Development carries a lot of risk. I'm going to go through this a little bit quicker because it's too negative now. We've got to move on to the positive part of the presentation. But, you know, you have interest rate risk where you don't really know where interest rates are going to be at the end of your three, four, five year development. You have um, 
valuation risk because interest rates drive cap rates which drive values and again you don't know where that valuation is going to be at the end of the when your project's completed you have construction cost risk and um, you know I know Toby was here earlier and he said construction costs are, are coming back down to me we're heading towards deglobalization deglobalization means higher construction costs higher everything everything is cost more so I'm not convinced construction costs are coming down but the issue I have with the construction industry is that Productivity is dropping every single year. We have older trades that are retiring. They're being replaced by younger people that don't work as hard. I can say that. But they don't work as hard. They're not as experienced. They're not as productive. Therefore, across the board, so First National has a $3 billion construction financing pipeline. We talk to all the best builders across the country and all the developers. The same refrain from everybody is every builder has A teams and they have C teams and D teams. There's no bench depth. And so if you don't get the A team on your site, that's just too bad for you, right? You're only as good as the team that's actually on your site. Two more risks, and then we move on to positive stuff, I promise. So um, this is the most difficult time I've had in my 21 years. I take a lot of pride in, in providing my clients with a really good roadmap as to how their financing is going to play out. They'll come to me pre-development, and they'll say, I want to build this project. How do I do it? And we have multiple options of how they're going to do it. At this point in time, I can tell you I am very concerned about what we can show them as a real clear roadmap because things are changing all the time. CMHC has provided amazing liquidity on the construction side for apartments. They're changing their programs. They're very concerned about where they are in terms of the market and how much exposure they have. So for the first time ever, I can say I don't have as good of a visibility as to what the financing is going to look like. So that's a concern. The final thing is, let's say that uh, we take a project. So let's say Henry, who's never done a deal with me, uh, so that's why it's a hypothetical example, comes to me and says, I have a $100 million project. And so for me to underwrite that construction loan, I have to look at what the future is going to look like. So when he's built and he's completed the building and leased it, what's the NOI going to be on that building? And based on that NOI, I also have to figure out a cap rate. So let's say now we figured out the value. And I'm going to look at what interest rates are going to be in three, four years. So in three, four years, I think interest rates are at this level. And now I come back to the present and I say, therefore, today's construction loan is going to be $70 million because I think your fully built, fully leased building is going to be able to support a $70 million loan at an interest rate of, call it 5%. So we start funding our loan. So he puts in his $30 million of equity. I start funding my $70 million loan. Construction's moving along well. He's a good builder, so he's building it under budget. So um, you're welcome. So um, now, all of a sudden, interest rates really move up like they have over the past year. And my 5% you know, expected rate is actually 6%. So now, inside, we're like, whoa, wait a second, there's a problem. Your 70 million term loan is actually going to be 65. So what do I have to do? I have to go to Henry and say, I'm sorry, but it looks like you might need to contribute an additional $5 million of equity. So we should walk out of the room. And then he comes back and he says, well, okay, now what? Well, if interest rates come back down, I'll give it back to you. But right now, you've got to contribute that extra $5 million of equity. Okay? And usually, developers like him don't just have one project on the go. They have multiple, which means that he may have to write a bunch of different checks to cover that shortfall. So this is a real, real risk that you've got to be mindful of when you look at development. The one thing I'm not concerned about is leasing risk. I think that is the most mitigated one because I think there's incredible demand out there for good product and I, uh, we're seeing rents, uh, we're seeing buildings rent at very good levels. 
Okay, so whew, we're finally through that. So Lucia's going forward. This is going to be so positive now. JT, are you ready? Okay, so um, first and foremost, okay, here we go. Lobby, lobby, lobby. And I'm not talking about your building. I'm talking about lobby your governments. Federal, provincial, municipal. Construction costs absolutely have to come down. And I know that everybody in the construction industry thinks that the magic solution is eliminate the HSD self-assessment and get rid of development charges. The reality is that just cannot happen. But they can certainly be reduced dramatically. Okay, number one. Number two, at the federal level, CMHC has done a great job over the years of coming up with new programs, like the MLI Select. The MLI Select is changing. Liquidity will be changing on the CMHC side. We need to have continuous programs that are coming up. CMHC needs to also embrace student housing more, which traditionally they haven't done as much. Um, you know, we need higher densities. We need land subsidies. We need less bureaucracy. We need faster approval process. I'm sure there's a developer you're looking around and saying, there's no chance I can be in pre-development for years, right? If we can fast track that and get those approved in three months or six months, that saves you a lot of interest and mitigates your future interest rate risk, construction costs, and so on. Build energy efficient buildings, okay? This will help you with your financing. This will help you with your uh, NOI going forward. And this will definitely help you with all your investors who all have ESG initiatives and requirements. So build, take the extra time, put the extra money in and build the most energy efficient buildings that you can. Okay, we're back to discipline. Real estate is now a different game. I know we've been used to loser underwriting. We've been used to um, you know, I'm buying something on a, on a benchmark underwriting, we're no longer in that spot, okay? We're in the spot of, look, stress test all your revenues, all your expenses. Every expense item that I see in all our buildings that we finance across the country, they never seem to pan out like the actual performance at the beginning. And so taxes are going up. You can't even get insurance. That's so difficult to place right now. Uh, uh, wages are more. Cleaning is more, every utilities are more, every line item on the expense side is higher. Also, if I take you back to that initial chart about the uh, volatility in the bond market over the last 12 months, you could be in a position where you lock up a loan, I'm sorry, you, you tie up a property, and by the time you actually fix your rate on the, on the loan, bond yields have moved 60 to 80 basis points. So stress this to your interest rate as well. So be disciplined in how much you pay for land, how much you pay for your, for, uh, acquisitions, but really stress this to your NOI and your and your interest rates. We're back to real, true real estate fundamentals. Okay, so what does that mean? When I started 21 years ago, apartment cap rates. Okay, Ian, you're way too young. Apartment cap rates were seven and a half percent. I worked on a 700 million dollar portfolio acquisition in 2004, where my client paid a seven and a quarter cap. And it was all Toronto and Montreal, and people thought they lost their mind paying a seven and a quarter cap on apartments. Okay, office and retail were nine percent, and industrial was was well over ten percent. And the reason for it is because the interest rates are five and a half percent. Today's best interest rate on a CMC basis, so if you can get CMC financing, which is just for apartments, is four percent. The conventional interest rates right now in the market are somewhere around five and a half percent, and they were as high as six and over six, not that, just a couple of months ago. So we're back to interest rates from 2001 or 2002, but our cap rates are still in that four to five percent range, whereas they were seven and a half to 11 back in the day, okay? So we're back to real estate fundamentals, which is start thinking lower 
loan to values, which means equity has got to be in that 30 to 35% range and start getting real cash returns on those investments. If you're going to tie up that much money and you're not going to keep it in a cash balance at 5% with the bank, then certainly you want to have real returns on this. For years, we've moved towards that merchant development format where you didn't really need to get cash returns because you can refinance or you can sell at a really good cap rate and then recoup all your equity and that's how you made your returns. But now it's a little bit different. Okay, two more points. Strong partners. Okay, this is a big one. So, get the best operators, get the best managers, get the best developers, get the best builders, get the best advisors. That's the, that's the best advice I can give you. So, the thing is, we are now in a position where only the best are going to survive. And again, this is one view, and you can go back and say, you know what, your interest rates are coming back down, everything's going back to where we were three years ago, okay? But if it goes the other way, where, where I, what I'm saying is true, then you really, really have to understand who your partners are. The other thing is, remember we talked about that scenario where you may need to contribute extra equity, right? So what does that mean? That means that you really need to understand how liquid your partners are. So you know that great partner that you always have? Are they really liquid? Can they really write a check for $5 million? And if they can, do I pay for that? And then if I have to pay for that, then what happens? So really understand, first of all, pick the best partners. And second of all, really understand how liquid they are and understand also what happens from the developer side. Like you're picking the university as your partner. What kind of guarantees can the university give? Are they able to give guarantees, right? For years they couldn't. I still don't think they can. So. How do we make this work going forward? So really, really understand who your partners are. And finally, the lender-advisor relationship is really crucial now. Um, only relationship loans are getting done. Um, you know, for the two deals that I mentioned earlier in, in Montreal and Halifax, we really bent over backwards for those borrowers. We had creative structures. We had, you know, multiple tranches. We had different debt covered ratios. We have interest-only components. We only did that because of our strong relationship with them, because we know how good they are. We know what they have in their portfolio. We can pinpoint exactly what their cash flow looks like. And we've had a very long relationship. So we know absolutely everything about them. And for that, we say, you know what? These are the kind of people we want to deal with. And we're going to help you as much as we can. So if you don't have a relationship with a lender or with an advisor, really, the advisor also is the same thing. You really need to pair up with people that understand what's going on in the market, have access to capital, and truly, truly understand your business, your value-add proposition, and what it is that you do. Okay? So, that wasn't so bad. Um, really, the bottom line is this is an amazing industry that has incredible fundamentals. We really do need to focus on some of those risks that exist out there and make the best of it. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Shore In Your Ears, the official podcast series of the Shore Initiative. Please visit us at shore.international. That's S-H-U-R-E dot international.